Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 23, we read, Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With men, it is impossible, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible. In this chapter, we have seen the servant on the subject of divorce in verses 1 through 12, and the servant with the little children in verses 10 through 16, and now Jesus and the rich young ruler in verses 17 through 22, and the story continues. The rich ruler presents a longing question about eternal life, and then Jesus points to A certain lack in verses 18 and 19 and 20 and 21 to abandon his possessions. The seeking ruler becomes a sorrowing ruler in verse 22. We're also told that he went away sad or sorrowful in verse 22 because he had great possessions. Jesus will use this event as a teaching moment and the servant will begin with an allegory about a camel and an eye of a needle and the chances of a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The allegory will prompt astonishment on the part of the stunned disciples in verse 26. But Jesus will answer Their astonishment with amazement and assurance in regard to redemption. That with God, in fact, all things are possible. And you'll remember that the chapter will contain a series of paradoxes. Two becoming one in verses 1 through 12. Grown-ups like children in verses 13 through 16. And from verse 17 all the way to this section where it ends in verse 31. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. We could add to that paradox. What's impossible becomes possible. I was tempted to entitle this message, When Too Much is Never Enough. How is it possible that wealth winds up robbing someone of God's great blessing? How is it possible that the rich are actually poor? And so clearly money and wealth are excellent servants, but they're horrible masters. Do you remember how old you were when you were first introduced to the concept of money? And what money could do. I think I was three or four. This is before we went off the gold standard and the silver standard. Remember, some of you are old enough to remember when silver dollars were actually made of silver. 
And my uncle Richard gave me a bright, shiny silver dollar. He pressed it into my hand and he said, now remember, Gino, a fool and his money are soon parted. And I looked at my uncle Richard and I looked at the silver dollar and I said, well, thanks for parting with it. You know, I didn't know exactly what to say. When we look at verse 23, we begin to see the temptation to trust wealth. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. The word translated riches is an important word in the Greek language. It's kremata. It can mean money. Or it can mean everything that money can buy. The references to those things that seem to have value or worth. As a matter of fact, 300 years before Jesus, Aristotle defined this word as all those things which find their value in terms of money. Some people reading or hearing this text might say, thank God, that's not me. I'm not rich. But what if I told you that in its context, it it would appear that here have riches means anyone who has anything beyond what is necessary to meet the immediate needs of your family. That's what constitutes wealth here. The rich person is anyone who has more than he or she needs. You'll you'll remember When Jesus comes to the end of his life, as he hangs suspended from a cross, all of his worldly possessions are there at his feet. All that he owns is torn in two and divided among the very people who crucified him. Look what it says in verse 24. And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus Answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples are astonished for the same reason that you are and that I am. We grew up in a world, in a culture where we associate great wealth with great blessing and even great favor. I can't even begin to tell you how many times people have come to me and they say, I don't know why God has blessed me with so much. And I say, you're right. What a what a curse. You know, I grew up in a world where there were two kinds of people. You know, Italian people and those that wish that they were. Some of you understand that I grew up in a world where my mother was descended from Hungarian Jews. My father was from Sicily. I've told you before that I walk by a bank. I don't know whether to hold it up or buy it. 
But really, there are two kinds of people in the world, those who have wealth and those who want wealth. The church father Augustine wrote, we all bow down before wealth. Wealth is that which the multitude of men pay an instinctive homage. They measure happiness by wealth and by wealth they measure respectability. It is a homage resulting from a profound faith that with wealth he may do all things. One of the advantages or disadvantages of growing up in a Jesuit school is they force you to learn stuff. We had to read all of those poems in high school. You'll remember Edwin Arlington Robinson. Some of you may have studied his poem, Whenever Richard Corey went downtown, we people on the pavement looked at him. He was a gentleman from Seoul to crown, clean favored and imperially slim. And he was always quietly arrayed and he was always human when he talked. But still he fluttered pulses when he said, good morning. And he glittered when he walked and he was rich, richer than a king. And and admirably schooled in every grace. And fine, we thought he was everything to make us wish that we were in his place. And so on we worked and waited for the light and went without meat and cursed the bread. And Richard Corey, one calm summer night, went home and put a bullet in his head. The mere possession of wealth brings with it temptations and tests, obligations and expectations. Perhaps the greatest test of all is to figure out how not to love it and trust it. And did the rich young ruler love wealth more than he loved God? When Jesus suggested, you'll remember when he said, sell everything that you have, give it to the poor. He said, come, take up your cross and follow me. And you'll remember he disappears. He beats a hasty retreat back into the swollen crowds. Think for a moment. The man ran to Jesus, but lacked that which should have caused him to Remain with Jesus. The rich young ruler knelt before Jesus, but lacked that which would have enabled him to worship Jesus in spirit and in truth. He called Jesus good master, but lacked whatever it took to render to him obedience. He came to Jesus with the most important question that a person could ever ask. What must I do to inherit eternal life? But... He lacks whatever it is to be able to accept the answer that Jesus gives. He desires eternal life, but he lacks the spirit of consecration necessary for its possession. The young man possessed a kind of admiration for Jesus. 
but lacked confidence that would have resulted in discipleship. He had a certain understanding of spiritual values, but he lacked wisdom which would have secured for him heavenly treasures. Think about it. He came. He knelt. He inquired. He listened. But he lacked the determination by which he could take up the cross in order to wear a crown. You know, wealth will sometimes pull us in different directions. And much of the world is focused on wealth. How do we have it? How do we keep it? And some of you have heard of a group of people who speak of the secret. I get almost calls on this issue on at least a monthly basis people will call and say hey tell me about the secret and tell me about the law of attraction and the secret is this allegation that you can create your own reality that the law of attraction is that like attracts like and that if you want wealth you can create wealth out of thin air Even the body of Christ has fallen to this hypocrisy and this fraud, and they call it the prosperity doctrine. Some pastors will reach into their wallet and they'll say, you know what? You can speak to your wallet and say, you big, thick, prosperous thing. You're just so full of money. But you note that they'll rarely teach on this passage. In Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 and 24, we read, Thus says the Lord, let let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness and judgment and righteousness on the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord, loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness it's not prosperity or wealth that he delights in the bible describes riches as unreliable uncertain unsatisfying unproductive unprofitable in proverbs 11:28 it says he who trusts in his riches will fail but the righteous will flourish like foliage Riches are uncertain. Riches certainly make themselves wings and fly away. Have you ever thought for a moment, you have this money and then all of a sudden it's gone? Richard Simmons used to say, I saw money once and all it had to say to me was, goodbye. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 verse 8 says, Neither is his eye satisfied with riches. In other words, once you have it, for whatever reason, it just doesn't seem to deliver. God isn't interested in your money. He's interested in your heart. The Lord understands that gold is not bread and that the Bread that has come down from heaven was meant to feed us. Riches promise much, but they rarely deliver. Note again, Jesus will use the phrase twice. In verse 23, verse 24, how hard. We're left with the impression that riches block 
our way to higher things. So what are the dangers of wealth? Well, number one, focus. Those with great wealth have have to protect their wealth and grow their wealth. And sometimes that leaves little time to think about heaven. A fabulously wealthy person came onto the Tonight Show and the talk show host said to him, you are wild beyond riches. How much more money do you need? And the man surprisingly just said, just a little bit more. Dr. Samuel Johnson was given a tour of a fabulous castle and elegant grounds. And he turned to his friends and he said, these are the things which make it difficult to die. That danger causes both head and heart to remain on the earth. And number two, when everything is thought of in terms of dollars and cents, it skews your way of thinking. That's the world in which I grew up. My father would always quantify things. Do you, do you know how much this thing costs? Do you know what this costs? Do you know what this is worth? And that danger is a problematic danger because we begin to think of our life and our wife and our family and our friends and our brothers and our sisters in terms of how much they cost. We even have a game show. It's called The Price is Right. It teaches us to evaluate things in terms of what they cost. And we wind up knowing the price of everything and the value of nothing. If a person's focus is on riches, the main interest will be in the price and not the value. How far will this money take me? How much can I get by on? What, what am I going to need? The Yiddish have a saying, if the rich could hire other people to die for them, then the poor could make a pretty good living. A second grade teacher pulled out a $5 bill and said to her class, I will give you this $5 if you can tell me the most important person who's ever lived. And one kid said, George Washington. The next kid said, Abraham Lincoln. The third kid, second grade with his iPad, Steve Jobs. And the teacher said, all of these men were great men, but they're not the greatest men. And the little Jewish boy in, in the class, he looks at the teacher and he said, Jesus Christ. And the teacher said, excellent, and gave him the $5 bill. And he says, but, you know, you're a little Jewish boy. Why, why did you say Jesus Christ? He said, well, in my heart, I thought the answer was Moses. But business is business. <laughs> you can come up with the right reason and the right answer. We like to think of ourselves as being generous. But are we generous with just some of our money or with most of our money? Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, Do not trust in uncertain riches. Wealth leads us to trust ourself or our ability or our energy or our effort. Wealth gives us the illusion that we are truly independent and we're truly self-sufficient. And you might be thinking, well, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with self-sufficiency? And what's wrong with independence? It's because the illusion of self 
self-sufficiency and independence, it causes you to distance yourself from the reality that each and every one of you are dependent upon God for the very breath that you're breathing, for the very blood that's beating through your Veins for the very heart. It is the Lord. It is the Lord. It is the Lord who gives you the ability to remain alive at any given moment. We are dependent upon the Lord, whether we're willing to concede it or not. Wealth will sometimes pull us away from Jesus and pull us away from God and pull us away from eternal matters. Wealth attaches us to this world. It allows us to live comfortably in it and taste its pleasures and stimulate our flesh and build our self-image. But the Bible teaches That we're to place our full faith and our full confidence and our full trust in the Lord. And if we fail to trust the Lord, we're going to always come up short. No wonder James says in James chapter 5 verse 2, your riches are corrupted. Why? Because they're being used to buy only that which is temporal and visceral. Paul told Timothy... But they that would be rich, those who would desire to be rich, those who lust after it, who make it their express goal to be rich, they fall into a temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. And it says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, which while some coveted after they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And so Jesus describes the spiritual difficulty associated with wealth. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus uses both hyperbole and allegory to make his point. Remember what a, what a hyperbole is? He is exaggerating a point in order to make a point. I have heard many fine Bible teachers teach that the eye of the needle was really a small door at a city gate because there's a Greek word, kamalos, which can be translated camel or it can be translated cord or cable like you would use to to, or thread. It was used on a ship or it was used concerning um, a, a, a string that you would use through the eye of a needle. And so they would argue, hey, look, there were two gates. There was the broad gate that you could enter into the city. And then there was a narrow gate that was closed after dark that was maybe three or four feet high. In order to enter the animal gate, the animal had to be small and the light load had to be light. And the only way that you could get in was to crouch slowly and make progress. And so those who embrace that idea conclude, hey, look, it's still possible for a rich man to enter, but you've got to lighten the load. You've got to be humble and you've got to crawl carefully. But I'm going to suggest to you as pleasant as that might sound, Jesus is either making the point of something difficult but doable or something that's impossible. And the disciples' response is impossible. And Jesus himself will either go on to say, it's impossible. Can you imagine the disciples as Jesus describes a camel going through the eye of a needle? 
Jesus, what are you saying? Are you talking about a camel smoothie? In order for the camel to go through the eye of a needle, it's going to have to be something other than a camel. Can you imagine grinding a camel down to such a degree that you could put it almost like in a drip as it goes through the eye of the needle? I think the disciples are actually getting the point. What you're describing is not possible. Look what it says. The pedestal of pride that wealth brings in verse 26. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, who then can be saved? We've already pointed out that we place the very wealthy on a fairly large cultural pedestal. If I were to ask you who the wealthiest man in the world is, what would you say? Bill Gates, I would be right. Who's the second wealthiest man in the world? Warren Buffett. The second wealthiest man in the world gave the vast majority of his wealth to the first wealthiest man in the world. But do you know who the third wealthiest man in the world is? Some of you may have never heard of him. His name is Carlos Slim Elu. He is incredibly wealthy. Ingvar Kamprad is the fourth wealthiest person in Sweden. Lakshmi Mittal in India is the next wealthiest person according to Forbes' list of the wealthiest people on the planet Earth. And the only reason why we know, again, is because they become cultural icons. And note that expression, greatly astonished. And remember why. The Jews considered wealth and prosperity as a special blessing from God. In every generation there are those who are blessed with extraordinary talent, amazing looks, resources. And when you are given amazing resources, you are deemed blessed by God. I can't even begin to tell you how many times people have said to me, hey, if God didn't want me to be wealthy, then why did God bless me with all of this wealth? Let me just ask you a blunt question. Is it possible that you can become very wealthy by working very hard? The answer is yes. But can you become very wealthy also by robbing, stealing, cheating, and taking advantage of people? What do you think the answer is? Yeah, that's true too. In other words, the presence of wealth isn't simply the test that says the presence of God. Twice we have read that the disciples are astonished in verse 24, verse 26. But why indeed are they astonished? And it's because they fail to see that riches are two things. They're an acid test from God, and they're also a responsibility to man to prove just how responsible he'll be before God. Let me put it a different way. Someone has once said, for every 100 people who can endure the test of adversity, there's only one person who can weather the storm of prosperity. Prosperity can easily make a person arrogant and proud and self-satisfied and worldly. 
George Truitt, who is the longtime pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas, relates the story of having dinner with a fabulously wealthy man. And they go out to his ranch and there was a particular place, a, a platform on the ranch. And the rancher says, look north. And for as far as you could see, there were oil rigs. Look south for as far as you could see, there was cattle grazing. Look left, look right, sprawling fields of grain, lush forests. He paused and he says, to think about it, 25 years ago, I didn't have anything. And he was expecting the pastor to compliment him on on his wonderful accomplishments. And the pastor looked straight up into the sky and he said, how much do you have in that direction? Money's a huge responsibility. And guess what? Most of you will never be entrusted with this. And for good reason. Because you can't. You see, a human being will be judged by two unmistakable standards. Do you know what they are? How did you get the money? The second, what'd you do with it? You see, the disciples were taught, they were literally taught, they were literally led to believe by their culture and by their society that prosperity and wealth and comfort is God's blessing, that a person receives it because God has blessed him or her, because it's a reward for their righteousness and obedience, and that God blesses the person with the things of this world if they are righteous and obedient, and then Jesus comes and he takes up pin and he bursts their bubble. He breaks the news to them that a prosperous person almost certainly will not enter heaven. That properties, prosperities, the tests are so rigorous that most people won't pass. Why? Because wealth is usually not an indicator of generosity, but of selfishness. Because you see, God judges you not based on how much you give, but how much you keep for yourself. And because God doesn't look at how much you give, but rather how much you keep for yourself, he exposes One of the world's most cherished beliefs that physical comfort, financial prosperity are signs that everything is going to be fine. And Jesus reminds them that just simply being good and simply being righteous isn't what really saves you. You mean it's possible that a person can be evil and selfish And have a huge amount of money. What do you think the answer to that is? It is possible. Does God reward people who are righteous with financial prosperity? Sometimes. Sometimes, but not always. 
Because God's concern is with spiritual blessing and wealth. Here's part of the point that the Bible seems to be making. Wealth is seldom a good thing. Jesus teaches in this passage that wealth is fraught with danger and it's extremely difficult for the rich to enter heaven. Yet the whole world, believer and unbeliever alike, preoccupy themselves with making it and spending it. Do people exist who God gives extraordinary resource to and and uses those resources as an express means of blessing and ministering to others? And thank God the answer is yes. And people who condemn the United States of America for being the wealthiest nation on the planet Earth don't often realize that if Americans who are the most generous people on the earth stopped giving, then this world would be a horrible, terrible, even worse place. Thank God for people who God has blessed with riches and they're very generous. I received this letter several months ago. I didn't know when I was going to get an opportunity to read it. But the person writes, Gino, Several weeks ago, you mentioned that we're going to have to tighten the church's budget and and belt and that positions would have to be eliminated. And that's sad. But your refusal to commit monies that you don't have is responsible stewardship that is much needed and sadly missing in our society and government. He says, hopefully this extra gift will prove useful and there are no strings attached. He says, long ago. Even before I became a believer, I heard a little poem that has guided my giving for many years. Quote, what? Giving again? I ask in dismay, must I keep giving and giving away? No, said the angel, looking me through. You may stop giving when the master stops giving to you. The person writes, every time I let a greedy, self-serving streak impede giving, this poem rings in my ears. He writes, you mentioned the church budget issue. You said something about dividing the sorrow and sharing the joy. He said, in this economy, I look for opportunities to share the joy. I got to tell you, that helps. The scripture says it's better to trust in the Lord than to place confidence in princes. That's what it says in Psalm 118, verse 9. In Jeremiah 17, 5, it says, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his arm, whose heart departs from the Lord. And in verse 27, look what it says. But Jesus looked at them and said with men, it is impossible, but not with God for with God, all things are possible. If salvation depends on self effort and self-righteousness, then we're all doomed. And in the passage, there are three glances that are made. If you go all the way back to verse 21, you'll remember Jesus looked at the rich young man It says he looked at him and he loved him. Love searches. One thing you lack, he says. That's love's verdict. Love demands. 
Sell everything. Give it to the poor. Come, follow me. There's a look of love that Jesus gives to this young man in verse 21. Then there is a look of faithfulness in verse 23 as Jesus begins to look around at all of the people who decided to stay. And now Jesus looks again a third time. The first look and the second look brought a sense of discouragement, but the third look is going to bring one of sheer encouragement because what Jesus does, he says, I'm going to invite you to look in a different direction. I'm going to invite you to look up. Because if you look around, If you look inside of your heart and if you look around, you're going to be frustrated and confused and annoyed. Because you're going to see from a human standpoint, no matter how rich you think you are, you will never be able to buy your way into heaven. And no matter how poor you are, you will never be able to manipulate God into thinking that you deserve to be saved when in fact you don't. And so Jesus invites them to take their eyes off themselves and off of each other. And he invites them to look up. Where impossibilities become possibilities. Some people might read this and completely miss the point. You know, with man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. Like what? Like I can still be a selfish, self-centered idiot and God will still accept me. Is that what the text is saying? I don't think so. Well, I can be a horrible sinner and remain a sinner and still go to heaven. That's not what the text is saying. What the actual text is saying is that apart from Christ and apart from his love and apart from his grace and apart from his mercy and apart from his forgiveness and apart from all of the the sacrifice of Jesus, you're not going to make it. Jesus seems to be saying on a human level, a rich man cannot be saved. And you might think, well, on a strictly human level, no one can be saved. And you would be right. Yet the rich face perils that the poor rarely encounter. So how narrow is the narrow gate? How broad is the way that leads to destruction? And how narrow, exactly how narrow is the gate that leads to eternal life? And Jesus invites you to Leave everything behind and fully trust in his grace and his mercy. Peter will later write in 1 Peter chapter 4, If the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. The Bible teaches that only God can ultimately rescue us from sin. That the rich as well as the poor have to turn from their sin and turn to God. But remember, according to the passage, who are the rich? The rich is anyone, 
anyone, anyone, anyone who has more than exactly what they need. So how will God judge the rich? How did you get your wealth? And what did you do with it? What are the dangers of wealth? Pride, abuse, esteeming this world. Some years ago, a newspaper offered a prize for the best definition of money. There were hundreds of submissions. The winning submission, quote, Money is a universal provider for everything but happiness. And a passport to everywhere but heaven. Isn't that good? So what do we do? We read the Bible and see what it has to say about the dangers of wealth. Never trust money. Always trust the Lord. Study God's word for peace and direction and instruction. Because I guarantee you that some of you will face the lure and the deception of money. The Bible gives us this incredible privilege to use our resources to alleviate the desperate needs of others. Remember, the majority of the people in the world are hungry right at this very moment. They're in need right at this very moment. They are hurt right at this very moment. But if you really, really, really want to break the chains of affection for this world, then develop an affection for heaven. Think about it. Imagine you're there. Speak of, of, of the times when, when you can't wait to be there. Develop a strong desire for heaven and knowing that your sojourn on the earth is short. And you'll remember Jesus allows the rich young ruler to walk away. He doesn't go, stop. Stop. Isn't there something else that we can talk about? Isn't there something else that that we can do? Isn't there some other way that I can encourage you to stay here with me? Jesus doesn't make the choice for him. And he will never make the choice for you. You have to make the choice. You have to decide which direction you're going to go. In the 50s and 60s, there was television shows on all kinds of crazy things. Some of you are old enough to remember Jack Benny. Jack Benny would do a skit where he would be walking down the street and he would be accosted by a robber. The robber would say, your money or your life. And Jack Benny would go, And the robber would say, well, he goes, I'm thinking. It was funny back then because people thought, how absurd that you would choose between money and your life. It was the middle of the night and a a rabbi heard a dark commotion inside of his room. Who's there? He heard a voice say, I'm a burglar. And the rabbi said, What are you looking for? 
And the burglar said, money. And the rabbi said, just wait a minute, I'll turn on the light, I'll help you look. (laughs) Hey, that's one way to get rid of the burglar. A very famous preacher, John Henry Jowett, used to tell his congregation, the real measure of our wealth is how much we'd be worth if we lost all of our money. Life is sometimes tragic for the person who has plenty to live on, but nothing to live for. So what are you living for? Maybe I can ask you another question. What are you worth? What are you worth when it's all gone? When all is said and done? And you find yourself in exactly the same position that Jesus found himself on a cross, getting ready to leave this world. For many of you, the sum and the substance of all that you have will be placed in a hospital drawer. Is that really who you are? Is that really what you're living for? Is that really what you're worth? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that life isn't always measured in terms of what we have. That life is way more than a house. We have to have a home. And Lord, if we're going to have things substitute for relationship and fellowship and joy, then, Lord, we need to take a good stock of what we're missing. Lord, we pray that we would look to the left and we would look to the right, that we would look north and that we would look south, but more importantly, that we would look straight up and ask and answer the question, what do I have there. Lord, we know that where our treasure is, that's where our heart will be. And Heavenly Father, I pray that we would long for the treasure that includes (laughs) satisfaction in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.